History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 418th episode of the History Goes Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, on this episode, we're going to a forest. Ooh. Epping Forest. We gotta love haunted forests and ones that have legends. This one is near London, and it's got a lot of great stories to go with it. Before we get into that, we want to welcome into the spectacular crew, Chris, with a C-H, and Dan. Thank you for joining us in our Facebook group. And now, this moment in oddity. Brian Campbell was digging around his yard in Romford, East London in 1987 when his shovel hit something metal. He quickly uncovered the clay-caked object and discovered an interesting artifact. He wasn't sure what to make of it and assumed it was some kind of measuring tool because it had multiple-sized holes in the round object, with 12 sides that was smaller than a tennis ball. He kept it on the windowsill and didn't think much of it until he saw a similar object decades later in a museum in Germany. It was then he discovered it was a Roman dodecahedron. The first was discovered 300 years ago, and archaeologists have been baffled by them ever since. The artifacts are finely crafted from metal. More than 100 have been found in total, and they are of varying sizes. There's no written documentation in any historical sources to shed light on their use. Were they used in trade, like coins? Were they for ornamentation? Were they used in magical practices? Or were they a measuring tool, as Campbell suspected? Nobody knows, and that makes the Roman dodecahedron very odd. This is Victoria from victoriaslift.com. When I'm not taking those who must choose their destiny for a ride on the lift, I'm listening to History Goes Bump podcast. History isn't boring, it's terrifying. The past remains with us, and so do its spirits. Can you hear them calling? They want you to know their stories. Listen now to their voices and the truth from the past. And now, this month in history. In the month of January on the 2nd in 1788, Georgia becomes a state. Georgia was named after King George II and Europeans first settled it in 1733. That first settlement was one of our favorites, Savannah. Georgia was one of the most prosperous British colonies, but that didn't stop the Patriots in Georgia from sending delegates to the Second Continental Congress. The colony remained deeply divided during the Revolutionary War, and Savannah was a stronghold for the British. 
1787, two Georgians named Abraham Baldwin and William Few Jr. signed the new U.S. Constitution at the Constitutional Convention. When the Constitution was ratified by Georgia on that day in January, it became the fourth state to enter the Union. There's nothing quite so epic when it comes to ghost stories as a haunted wood. About an hour outside of London is Epping Forest. This is an ancient woodland with more aged trees than any other site in the United Kingdom. One can only imagine how many elementals and fae people must call this place home. There's history and some legends and, of course, ghosts. Join us as we set off on an adventure through Epping Forest. Waltham Forest is an outer borough of London, bordered by Essex, that was established in 1965. Its name is taken from an ancient woodland called Waltham Forest. The Waltham name was probably derived from Waltham Toe. Roman and Saxon settlements cut down much of the original woodland, and remnants of their settlements are still found in the borough to this day. What is left of that former woods is Epping Forest, which lies on a ridge between two rivers, Lee and Roding, and covers 5,900 acres. This is more commonly known as the People's Forest. Epping Forest is also its own government district in Essex that was formed in 1974. The town is referred to as a market town and is known to draw visitors to its steam engine tours, antique shops, and historical reenactments. No one is sure just how ancient Epping Forest is, but it first was recorded in writing in the 17th century. Ruins dating to the Iron Age were found, so the forest clearly dates back to that time. Benjamin Harris Cowper discovered an Iron Age camp in 1872, and it was excavated by General Augustus Pitt Rivers in 1881. The site was dated to 500 BC and is today marked off as several hill forts that sit in a line. They are named Loughton Camp, Embresbury Banks, Walbury Camp, Little Haddam, Barkway, and Littlebury. Loughton Camp covers 10 acres and is located at one of the highest points in Epping Forest. This camp more than likely had a single high rampart, and there's a stone Iron Age grain millstone nearby. Ambersbury Bank is spread over 11 acres with a six-foot-high bank encircling it, hence where the bank's part of its name comes from. Pudding stone blocks were used in its construction. Kelly, we need to go down a rabbit hole on this pudding stone. Okay, this time I'm jumping first. Can I push you? No, and you can't land on me either. Hello? Hello? Yes, I'm down here in the rabbit hole and I've brought you with me. Pudding stone is a conglomeration of round pebbles that have been cemented to each other. The fact that the pebbles have colors that contrast with whatever cements them together is what gives them the name pudding stone because it looks like a Christmas pudding. Yummy. I'm just thinking, I don't know if I'd eat a Christmas pudding that looks like that. <laughs> Honestly, I could tell you I wouldn't eat Christmas pudding because I'm sure it must have raisins in it. Yeah, probably. And, and I, I, I'm not, I know you like bread pudding. I've only had it a couple times. I'm mm -hmm. not a huge fan. I love bread pudding if it doesn't have raisins in it or I pick the <laughs> raisins out just like carrot cake. I pick the raisins out. I do not do raisins. They just remind me too much of one thing after having a pet rabbit. <laughs> Great. 
Puddingstone is usually named after the particular area that it originates. So there is Roxbury Puddingstone, Hertfordshire Puddingstone, Shunamunk Puddingstone, St. Joseph Island Puddingstone, and so on. And several of those are here in America, so it's not just an English thing. This is all naturally forming, and the material that cements the pebbles varies from sand to silica to sandstone. So that's Puddingstone. Now everybody knows what that looks like. Let's get up out of this rabbit hole. I think I'm going to try my pogo stick this time. Not much is known about the other hill camps. Boudicca is a British folk hero who was the queen of the British Iceni tribe. This was a group that rose up against the Roman Empire in 61 BC. There's a local legend that claims that Boudicca used the camps for her army's last stand, but there's never been evidence of that found. The battle that legend claims took place on Ambresbury Banks was similar to the Battle of Bull Run. And Kelly, for those that don't know, Bull Run was a catastrophe for a simple reason that they thought this was going to be a one-day show. Exactly. This is going to be a quick first battle in the Civil War. We're going to put down those Southerners and we're going to be done with this thing. So, hey, everybody, come on out with your picnic baskets and watch some fun like they're going to a football game. Yep. So you got all these families that come out to watch this first battle. And that was kind of what was going on with the Iceni tribe here. They far outnumbered the Romans and they thought this would be a quick battle, just as Bull Run was predicted to be that. Unfortunately, Boudicca's charge was faltered because they had to go uphill, which you never want to start a battle where you're going to have to run up a hill. And so the Romans are up there and they just fired a hail of javelins at them. The Iceni tried to retreat, but the wagons there blocked them in and trapped them with all their families watching. Wasn't that wonderful? And the Romans had a huge victory. I can't remember the exact numbers that I read, but it was like 10 to 1 Wow! with, How- with the Romans uh, only losing 1 to Boudicca's people losing 10. Boudicca and her daughter suicided on poison before the battle concluded because it was so devastating, I guess. But again, in the dozens of times archaeologists have excavated here, they've never found any evidence for the battle actually happening on any of these hill forts here. Historians believe that it more than likely took place near Manseter in Warwickshire. But the interesting thing is that the spirit of Boudicca has been seen wandering around Ambresbury Banks and Loughton Camp. So maybe they didn't fight here, but she certainly seems to be hanging out there for some reason. The sounds of drums and marching soldiers have also been heard. The Anglo-Saxons cut down much of the forest in the area of the hill forts. The trees in this area were clearly a reforestation after the forts were abandoned because they are mostly wild service trees. There are many varieties of trees found in the forest, including the beech birch and oak hornbeam trees. There are still around 55,000 ancient trees here, including ancient pollarding trees. And do you know what that means, Kelly? I do not. Basically, pollarding trees means cutting them back nearly to the trunk so that it produces a dense mass of branches so that you can use the trees again in the future. It's sometimes done for aesthetic purposes. The resulting lollipop trees can be appealing to those who crave horticultural oddities or we have crepe myrtles here in Florida. And that's something that you're just supposed to do to them as you cut them all the way back kind of almost to the trunk. And then they get these little knots as they grow and it looks really cool. And it helps them to grow more healthy. But they did this back in that time because they wanted to keep using the trees over and over again for wood and such. I would imagine they'd probably be harvested when they were more of a sapling size. So they're a little bit more flexible. But who knows? 
The Epping Forest also has around 100 ponds, grasslands, streams, a bog, and a heath. Some of the ponds are man-made since cattle were allowed to roam here. Other ponds formed from bomb impacts. Timber from the trees was used in the shipbuilding industry for the Royal Navy. Much like the forest near St. Brival's Castle, which we just did in an episode, Epping Forest was a royal forest, first gaining that legal status during the 12th century under Henry II. Royalty would hunt here and villagers were allowed to let their cattle graze and they could gather firewood. The use of it as a hunting ground continued up through Henry VIII and his daughter Elizabeth I. Henry VIII had a building known as the Great Standing built in 1543 to be used as a lodge. The building is still there and open to the public under the name Queen Elizabeth's Hunting Lodge. It offers a great view of Chingford. Deer were the most popular game sought in the forest. There were populations of both red deer and black deer. Today, red deer, or they also call them roe deer, are no longer found in the forest. I think the last they saw there was back in 1921 or something. There had been an ancient tradition known as the Easter Monday Stag Hunt, which officially ended in 1807. There were still some hunters who engaged in it after that time until a riot brought it to an end in 1882. Yeah, it's like they would capture a stag and then send it out and everybody would go after it. And I guess it was kind of a lot of drunkenness and stuff. That's why it ended in a riot on that last one. So it just got kind of out of hand. Rebel rousers. There were several lords who had manors in the forest and they erected many enclosures, which caused strife for years. The commoners would break down the fences on occasion so their cattle could graze freely. By 1878, Epping Forest was under the jurisdiction of the City of London Corporation and no longer a royal forest. The city purchased the 19 manors. Many things changed after this, starting with no more hunting for the crown. People had more ability to let their cattle graze in the forest and they could collect firewood. One person was hired as the primary caretaker of the forest, and this was a superintendent. Twelve forest keepers were also appointed. On Whit Monday in 1880, they recorded 400,000 people in the forest. I don't know if that was something special on that particular Pentecost or what, why there was so many people in the forest that day. Queen Victoria visited in 1882 and reiterated that the wood was the people's forest. The forest would reach the modern era when a road was planned out through the center of it, and it is today known as the Epping New Road that is part of the A104. I kept waiting for it to say the primary caretaker of the forest is now the sheriff of Epping Forest, kind of like the sheriff of Nottingham. Nottingham. The Butler's Retreat is another building that remains from Victorian times and is adjacent to the Queen's Hunting Lodge. It's named for John Butler, who once owned the property. The building was refurbished and reopened in 2012 as a cafe. Along with the lodge and the retreat, there's a coach house and stables that have been opened as an interpretation center. These four buildings make up the Epping Forest Gateway. Today, Epping Forest is made up of a lower forest, which is just north of the town of Epping, Bell Common that has a cricket pitch, Epping Thicks, where the Ambresbury Banks Iron Age Fort is located, Genesis Slade, Great Monk Wood, High Beach, Bury Wood and Chingford Plain, which has a golf course, Knighton Wood and Lord's Bushes, Hatch Forest and Hyams Park, Woodford Green, which also has a cricket pitch, Walthamstow Forest and Gilbert Slade, Leighton Flats, Bushwood and Wanstead Flats, and Wanstead Park. And there are three visitor centers. This is a rather large forest with a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, I was kind of shocked with all the different areas of it. There are many legends connected to the forest and a few ghost stories. 
One legend features the highwayman Dirk Turpin, who was turned up in a couple of our episodes. Turpin was born in Essex and took after his father as a butcher. In the 1730s, he joined an Essex gang of deer thieves. They were known as the Gregory Gang, and they were notoriously violent. He eventually left them and became the legendary highwayman we all know him as. Floaten Camp in Epping Forest was a place for refuge for him and also his hunting ground. He worked with Thomas Roden, and eventually there was a bounty on their heads. A servant of one of the forest keepers named Thomas Morris saw Turpin in his hideaway in Epping Forest and decided to try and apprehend him. Turpin shot and killed him. Eventually, Turpin was arrested and hanged in York in Navesmire on April 7, 1739. Turpin was buried in St. George's Churchyard in York, but his body didn't stay there long. He was exhumed by a man who sold him to a doctor that wanted to dissect Turpin's body. An angry mob showed up before that could happen, and the doctor and body thief were arrested. Well, at least they protected the body, even though he was a bad guy. I was going to say, did he deserve the protection? Turpin was reburied, but he would not have a headstone for 200 years. Perhaps it was this little episode that has caused Turpin to be at unrest. His spirit is said to walk through Epping Forest and likes to hang out at his former haunt, or hideout, near Loughton Camp. This wasn't the only crime going on in the forest. The Epping Forest is a good place to make things disappear and to dump a body or two. More than a dozen murder victims have been found in the forest since the 1960s. The most recent was in 2015. One of the more bizarre murders was of Patricia Parsons in 1990. She ran a local massage parlor. She apparently had a little black book of clients and was going to sell the details to a newspaper. So clearly more than massage was going on here. It is believed a contract was placed on her head and she was found dead in her car with a bolt from a crossbow through her head. And I just love that I knew what a bolt was, as I explained in our St. Brival's Castle All the things we learned from Walking Dead. I know, look at it all, how it all (laughs) just comes together. The murder remains unsolved. And there was a hitman-style execution of an accountant named Terrence Gooderham and his girlfriend, Maxine Arnold, in the forest in 1989. Gooderham was believed to have worked for the Clerkenwell Crime Syndicate laundering money, and he extorted 250,000 pounds for himself. Nobody has ever been convicted of the murders, but a man described as, quote-unquote, Britain's most notorious hitman, James Moody, was believed to be the trigger man. A paper clipping from March of 1878 tells the story of an apparent suicide at Knocker's Pond, which is at Lindsay Street. It reads, Early on Wednesday morning, a hat and coat were seen by Mr. Bates' milk boy, lying by the side of Knocker's Pond in Lindsay Street, Epping. The pond is a large one, within sight of a number of cottages, which get the greater part of their water supply from it. Under the coat was found the following letter. My dear brother, when you receive this, my body will be lying in the pond at the lane near Epping. My brain has gone mad through that cursed horse racing and betting. I've spent my last penny in town for bread, but I am driven mad through Croydon races. Please break the news to my unhappy wife and children. Tell her I have found her last words came true. Keep this from poor father, as it breaks his heart. Goodbye, my brother Walter. If it possible, never remember me no more. From your unhappy brother. The letter was addressed to a Thomas Morris, and the paper says the pond was searched and dragged, and no body was ever found. I just thought that was the weirdest story. They had this suicide note left there, but no body was ever found. 
I'd be a thankful one if my cottage was right there and I was drawing water from it. Do, yeah. Don't want a body desiccating in there. And I don't know, you know, back in 1878, how well they could drag a pond to find a body. So I don't know if it was just the techniques or if there really was nobody there. Maybe he changed his mind and forgot to pick up his coat and hat and letter. But he must have disappeared because they ran it in the paper and you would think he'd step forward and go, oh, that was my letter. Psych. Didn't really do it. Psych. Okay. (laughs) So that's the real story. But the pond does have an amazing legend. The story morphed into a milkman and milk cart that managed to crash into the pond after he fell asleep while driving. Now people claim to see a cart and horses being driven by a headless man emerging from the depths of the pond on occasion. Talk about a story of telephone. (laughs) I know. It went from a little milk boy going, "Uh, yo, Mr. Bates, I found this hat and jacket and letter over here to, he was a man in a milk cart with a horse and they crashed into the pond and now they come flying out as spirits. But that is a much better story, I think. There are even some who claim it is carrying a body to the angel in the Epping Cemetery in Bury Lane. Another story about this pond dates to the 1960s when visitors to the forest claimed to see two ghostly figures emerge from the pond and they were on horseback. They then rode in the direction of town. Speaking of ponds and suicide, there's another legend that claims another pond deep in the forest draws people to it to commit suicide in the water. This pond was said to be the scene of a tragic murder-suicide of two lovers around 300 years ago. The water is dark and murky and no birds sing here. The pond has been nicknamed Suicide Pond. No one knows the exact location, and there was even a contest held one year for people to find it, but no pond seemed to match the description. And I'm wondering, what do you mean it didn't match the description? When people got close to it, they didn't go, I think I'm going to hurl myself into it just because. Or maybe it wasn't dark and murky, or the birds were singing that day. That could be. (laughs) (laughs) And speaking of headless spirits, the Wake Arms Roundabout is a home to a headless male spirit that is believed to be a biker who died here in an accident. He needs to watch out for the ghostly horse-drawn coach that comes through here as well. Perhaps the one from the pond in the forest. The King's Oak Pub is a Victorian building that was built in 1887. The restored gastropub has timber beams, antique crystal chandeliers, and log fires where one can enjoy traditional pub food. There is also a headless horseman ghost that likes to haunt the area near the pub. And a little girl who drowned near the pub likes to pop up every so often. They sure have a lot of headless stuff hanging around here. We don't know for sure that anyone was hanged in the forest, but with its centuries of history, there may have been an execution or two here. One place with this reputation is Hangman Hill. The spirit of a hangman walks around this area according to local legend. And what he does sounds very familiar to our spook hills here in America. He likes to drag cars uphill. Just as with our spook hills here... People put their cars in neutral, and the car slowly drags up the hill. Perhaps just as the hangman dragged people to the noose. The high-pitched screams nearby, though, cause one to think this is more than just an optical illusion, which is what we think most of our spook hills here are. Although I will say it is pretty cool when you're sitting in your car and you got it neutral and you see a hill behind you and all of a sudden your car starts going up and you're like, whoa, how is that happening? (laughs) I still need to take you to spook hill here. Yeah, it's just down the road. Yep, not too far. People love to spend an afternoon picnicking in the People's Forest. The ancient trees make for a creepy and fun setting. There's much to do here from mountain biking to fishing to hiking to horseback riding. But be careful because many people claim to have been touched by unseen things, to hear phantom sounds, and to feel as though they're being watched. Is Epping Forest haunted? That That is for you to decide. decide. 
Sounds like a cool place. I always love when you stumble across these haunted forests because anytime you see a deep, dark forest, it just always gives you that creepy vibe. So when it has stories to go with it, it's all the better. Let's go exploring. We'd love to have you guys explore our website, historyghostbump.com. And if you want to send us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. Kelly, remember a couple episodes back, we were talking about the name Margaret and how the nickname Peggy usually goes with that name. And we're like, what in the world is that about? Yes, indeed. Well, my goodness, our people in the Spooktacular crew and in emails have been having a heyday talking about all this. Like, you know, how does John or Jonathan become Jack and all these different ones. And one of the emails we got was from Ashley on this. She said, I want to answer a question that you guys had about Peggy being a nickname for Margaret from episode 415, The Ramsey House. Some of the time it comes from one person having that nickname combo and then a second member of family or close relation also given the same one in honor or memorial of that first person. Now going through the generations, it and maybe two people for each in the generation before, like a pyramid, getting the same nickname, then it becomes more and more common. There are several other weird name combos that is believed to have a similar origin. Some other brain scratchers include Polly and Molly being a nickname for Mary, Fanny for Nathaniel, Harry and Henry, Kit for Christopher, and Suki for Sarah or Susan, just to name a very few. Let's say I've learned a lot when I've had to work on genealogy. Well, very cool. And I know that people in the Spooktacular crew said that Margaret, you know, the nickname for it was Mag or Maggie, and that somehow that got translated into Peg and Peggy and that kind of thing. But there are a lot of them out there. And I remember there was a show that I told you that I really enjoyed watching called Agent Carter because it was back in like the 40s. So I love that era and everything like that. And her first name was Peggy, according to the show. When you looked at her biographical stuff, her real name was Margaret. Gotcha. So even on that show, they reflected the Peggy Margaret thing. So thanks for sharing that, Ashley. We also heard from Charlene. She said, hi, I've been listening to your podcast since the very first episode. I mean, come on, ghosts and history, two of my favorite subjects. This is the first time I'm able to supply you with some information. I just got done listening to your Haunted Petersburg, Virginia podcast, and you mentioned the soldier that lost his arm. And I was like, I know we had it in an episode. I can't remember his name. I feel really bad that I couldn't remember his name because it was none other, she said, than Thomas Stonewall Jackson. Right. I'm like, how did I not remember it was Stonewall Jackson? Sometimes it's hard to come up with all the little details right off the cuff. I know. In the middle of well, recording. I told her I have so much stuff crammed in the filing cabinets in my brain that I can't remember half the stuff anymore. This is true. But she said he was the one shot by his own army after the Battle of Chancellorville. They did amputate his arm and he lingered on for a couple of weeks before dying. Then she said there's some conjecture that if he hadn't died, the Confederacy may have held out and won the war. Then she also said, also, I have a friend named Margaret who we call Peggy. So there you go. Jewel sent us an email and she wanted to tell us a little bit about what a dog trot is and then an encounter that she had at the place that she worked. So first she says, there were enslaved workers dog trot cabins at where I work. From what I understand, it was popular during the early settlers for my area, 1815 to 1820s. The term, as best I can tell, derived in relation to allowing their hunting dogs to sleep close by without actually being in the house. I was told this was to allow the dog to sleep close to his master to quickly alert of hostile visitors. The dog trot went on to become very popular in planter society for their enslaved workers. Authentic dog trot cabins were two buildings connected by the dog trot. It was a way of saving money when it came to housing their enslaved workers. Two families could live under one dog trot cabin as well. So I guess it's kind of like having a duplex only... Instead of having a wall between you, you had a hallway, which you could go back and forth through. 
And then she said, the house spirits have finally messed with me. My site manager and I were taking down our Christmas decorations the other day. The day was gorgeous and we had the mansion to ourselves. While taking down decorations in the dining room, I managed to hear a very masculine southern man deeply engaged in conversation in the gentleman's bedroom. The way the house is designed, I could see straight into the gentleman's bedroom. Nobody was there and nobody was outside of the courtyard. The house is built like a U with a courtyard in the middle. It was literally just my manager and me in the house. What was odd is that you could hear him pause for someone's reply and then he would reply back. I wasn't able to hear the other voice. I wish I had the presence of mind to actually listen to what was being said. Well, that's cool that she finally had an experience there. Yeah, very much so. Shalon made a comment in the crew saying, Now I've experienced something odd. This just happened in the last hour. Number one, I was listening to episode 100 and decided to listen to the newest drop. Heard my name in the shout out for the Facebook page. Thank you for saying my name correctly. Two, I got a call from my boss about four hours ago to recover a load in Terre Haute, Indiana. And this episode 417, a cemetery from Terre Haute is talked about. Then a post I made about I-40 was read on air. I almost peed my pants. I believe that was the one about the Native American spirits on the road. Four, then our lovely host began to talk about synchronicities. Oh my God. I pulled into a rest area 20 minutes after the episode for the little trucker's room and came back to a message that I was no longer needed for the recovery load. How wonderfully odd. Sorry, I just had to post a strange event. Also went on to comment and said, I guess I should have waited a few minutes to make that post because the next thing I listened to was episode 101 about Oklahoma. Guess where I live? Oklahoma. The synchronicity just keeps going. I just listened to episode 102 of Oklahoma City. My home terminal is actually in Oklahoma City, and I just moved from Oklahoma City in November. Most of all, I love the shout out at the very end of the episode of 102, thanking all truckers. That meant so much to me. Well, you're very welcome. And Mary and the crew said, sign from my dad on this anniversary yesterday. How is it a coincidence? I was approached to complete an oral history internship for a maritime museum that wants to preserve stories from people who built wooden boats by hand. I would conduct and record, type up, and archive all of those interviews. If you didn't know, I grew up on a wooden boat that my father lovingly and painstakingly restored and maintained. Nice to hear from my dad. This was one of his big sand paint stain projects when I was about nine. She'd posted a picture of it. My professor did not know this about me, and I didn't know this museum existed. That is so cool. Her dad's anniversary was the day before, and then she gets asked to do this thing, which was something that was like... That was totally his wheelhouse. Just amazing. Well, thanks for sharing that, everybody. I want to thank you guys for tuning into this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode isn't brought to you by our executive producers. Join me in the cemetery by becoming an executive producer. You can join on Patreon or PayPal. Check out the Support the Show tab on the website for more information.
there's nothing quite so epic when it comes to ghost stories as haunted wood. Gotta nope. Haunted. I know. <laughs> haunted wood? Like, what is haunted wood? Is that just like a log sitting on the ground going, ooh, ooh. No comment. Look, Kelly, it's haunted wood. And, and then join us as we set off on an join us as we set off on an, an adventure. Waltham Forest is an outer outer. I'm starting to go outer burl. So there's Roxbury pudding. I can't say pudding stone anymore. The sounds of drums and marching. Sh- God, I shoulders. Say, I can't see shoulders. shoulders. Head, shoulders, knees, and toes. Knees. <laughs> People had more ability to let their cattle graze in the forest, and they collect. They were known as the Gregory Gang, and they were notoriously violent. Violent. They were violent. They were violent. Mowage. Mowage. The water is dark and murky and no birds. Boards. Bored birds? They're bored. They're bored. That's, That's why, why they, they don't, don't sing. sing. 